0: This episode of Tinfall Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, and revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world and, we hope, giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today? I have been following Stephanie Izard around with an ancient flip cam for about a decade and a half now, ever since her landmark season of Top Chef, where she was the first woman to ever win, and she did it so with skill and dial. She followed that up with accolades like Food & Wine Best New Chef and a James Beard Award for Best Chef Great Lakes. She's got multiple restaurants in Chicago and Los Angeles, a couple of excellent cookbooks, a range of sauces, spice mix, and crunches under the This Little Goat umbrella, and so many more exciting projects on the horizon. But this is not where she expected to be. Stephanie was a serious competitive swimmer, just thinking ahead to her next meet and never thinking that she'd go into restaurants as a calling, even though she had spent her childhood tweaking dishes in her home kitchen and forcing her friends to play restaurant. It was a joy to catch up with Stephanie, minus the flip cam, and talk about working at the Olive Garden, a fateful phone call that she received, and now trying her own kids' culinary experiments. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of Tanfoil Swans, Stephanie Izard, and the happy birthday song. I am so glad that you're here today. I'm going to hold up an object. And if you would describe for folks listening, because this is an audio medium, do you recognize this object.
1: It's like an older than a phone type of thing, an old camera. Oh my gosh, is it an old video recording device that you use? That is, in fact, the flip cam that I stuck in your face. Does this ring a bell to you whatsoever? <laughs> yes. Isn't that so crazy how much technology has changed since then? I was like, what is that? It's so thick and looks so heavy and so awkward. But yeah, I was trying to think back to the first time that we met. I remember talking to you because I remember just kind of clicking right away and having so much fun chatting with you. I mean, there's been so much time since then. It's hard to remember the exact moment. I'm
0: trying to remember if this was our first time we met or not, but I do have a distinct memory of you. You were in the middle of cooking for Best New Chef.
1: This year at Aspen, when they were giving Bobby Flay his belated Food & Wine Best New Chef, they were calling out all the different years that people were there and they said something like 2018 for me or something. I was like, well, thank you. I hope that I'm <laughs> much older than that. Thank you.
0: <laughs> First of all, like, let's grab that moment and say Bobby Flay was supposed to be a Best New Chef in 1992. He got the call and everything and then Food & Wine did Best Restaurant in America that year or something. So he never actually
1: got it until an honorary coat this year. I know. And I'm guessing watching him go up on stage, I mean, he has so many other accomplishments since then that are equally as exciting. Obviously, you could still see it's like sort of giving him that satisfaction, like now you get it. That was pretty awesome. It was like a beautiful moment. It was moving that
0: folks who have these accolades can still really, really feel it. So I just remember so distinctly walking into this Best New Chef's party and I didn't really know anyone. I was near the start of my food writing career and you were serving a scallop dish and I was absolutely dying to try this. And at that time, I had a scallop intolerance. And you presented to me really, really proudly. And I was so excited, but I couldn't eat it. And I wanted to let you know why I couldn't. no. No, you remade the dish without the scallop for me. And I was so impressed by your kindness. It was just this really touching moment of hospitality that really stood out to me in a situation where i was feeling incredibly awkward and outside my comfort zone and it's just come to characterize what i think about you and your hospitality and what were you thinking at that party when you were cooking for all of these people
1: i remember feeling definitely overwhelmed now that you said the scallop dish i'm trying to remember in my brain so badly what all was on that dish which is my problem from all of the cooking that i ever do i should really take notes about this <laughs> i remember when we got up on stage one of the cutest moments we're all up there just had gotten introduced as our class. And Daniel Baloud was right up in front and he had this little camera, kind of like what you just showed me, your little cream cheese camera thing that you have. <laughs> and he was taking pictures of all of us. And what was so incredible is that Daniel Baloud, none of us had ever worked for him. He was just there because he was so excited to just meet all these young chefs and support all the chefs. So that was definitely one of my favorite moments. But also just making these amazing new friends that I was chosen to be in the class with for Best New Chef that year. We really became this tight knit unit, which is amazing. It's nerve wracking. You've been chosen as one of the best new chefs. <laughs> (laughs) You better make some tasty food at this party. What came before that? Was it Top Chef or Best New Chef? I think that Top Chef came before Best New Chef because I was on Top Chef right after I sold my first restaurant, Scylla, that I opened when I was 27. And they just happened to call right when I was winding that down. And then I was Best New Chef, when I was getting ready to open Girl and the Goat. I remember sitting in the office at Girl and the Goat when I got the phone call from Food and Wine saying that I had won. And they were like, you can't tell anybody about this. So I'm sitting in the office and of course there's people around. We were just opening a restaurant. And so I was like, wow, thanks. And I didn't sound that excited. And then my friend Vanessa from Food and Wine reached out and she was like, you really should try to be a little more excited about this. I was like, I wanted to scream from the rooftop. I'm like, this is something I've been wanting my whole career. It's something that I was so excited about. But they said I couldn't tell anyone. (laughs) So when you're sitting in an office, around a bunch of your coworkers. If you start screaming about something, they're going to know something's up. So let's rewind this back to 10-year-old Stephanie. Like, who... Are you at this point? It's funny because now I have a seven year old Ernie, and sometimes I try to think about where I was when I was his age. When I was a kid, I was a competitive swimmer, so I was always running around doing things, this high energy child that was always busy with swimming and with all sorts of things. And then there's things that I look back at from your childhood where I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be a chef when I grow up. I cooked with my mom and such, but it wasn't something that was a goal of mine. But when I look back to when I was 10 years old and when I was having friends over to our house and we would play restaurant, my mom would be out doing whatever. And And we would take all of our good china and we would even raise a table and make it into a bar. We would make little menus and we were only, the menu would have a bunch of offerings, but we were only allowed to use the toaster oven. So we would always only serve like this frozen chicken cordon bleu or something. So we weren't doing as much of the cooking, but we just loved the idea of playing restaurant, which looking back on that, I'm like, I don't feel like that's normal. Like I just picture you doing a little P&L sheet. Yes. Yeah, still my favorite part of owning restaurants, by the way.
0: Yes. How did you know what a restaurant was? I mean, maybe that seems like a silly question, but not everybody has the same growing up relationship to restaurants. What was yours?
1: My parents always took us to restaurants. So we grew up, born in Chicago, but grew up in Stamford, Connecticut. And there was a couple of restaurants we just went to regularly. So there was a pizza place that we always went with this one family one Friday every month. So we would go in and they're like, oh, the Izards are here. And we had the same table every time. It was that kind of place. And then there was a sushi place as soon as it opened. I think I was a little older that we would get food from. So I wasn't dining all over the place, but we had these regular places that we went. And I definitely knew what restaurants were. And I think I was already drawn to them because I was just fortunate enough to do that growing up. My mom was an amazing cook. So she was cooking stuff from all over the world all the time. Where was she picking that up? Did she do cookbooks? Was there food on TV? Magazines? Cookbooks, mostly. She grew up in a household where her mom was not a good cook at all. So I always think, you know, it's either one or the other where you can learn to do it just because you want to learn because your mom was terrible. Or I was the opposite side where my mom was great. but She had this cabinet that was always full of cookbooks and they were from all over the world. So she had Chinese cookbooks, Japanese cookbooks. Of course, those are coming to mind first since I cook so much Asian food these days. But I remember she had this friend, Mrs. Cole. And once a month, Mrs. Cole would come over and they would make mandarin pancakes together. And then they would each take a stack home that night And my sister and I would be in the kitchen helping my mom make mooshu, like taking all these dried mushrooms that we would get at the time because you couldn't get really unique mushrooms at the grocery store. It was like button mushrooms. And we would take the tiger lily buds and be pulling those in half, just helping my mom make the mooshu with these fresh manner and pancakes. I just don't think that that's an everyday occurrence in households probably even now, but she just loved cooking and loved to learn things from all over. Were there the Time Life books? Oh, there for sure was some Time (laughs) Life books. And also she had every gourmet magazine that there ever was. And this is what the upsetting part of that though. So they eventually ended up in binders that were in this sort of back room. And when my parents sold their house in Connecticut, moved to Arizona, they had this huge yard sale. And they sold them no. all. Oh. I literally started crying. I was like, are you guys kidding me? I'm, I'm upset that you gave away my school projects, yes, but you gave away all the gourmet magazines. I guess my mom didn't really think about the fact that I would definitely have wanted to hold on to those. I honestly was recently on eBay looking to see if there was a complete set anywhere because they're so inspirational. It goes back to, what, the 40s or so? I mean, there's a full set. It's in Connecticut
0: somewhere. So you have all these magazines at home and an mom who cares about all of this. What were you thinking about the people who were cooking the food? Did you see any representation out there? Were you looking at Julia Child
1: or Martin Yan or somebody out there who was like in the media and thinking, hmm, maybe someday. Was there any inkling of that? There definitely wasn't a maybe someday in it, but that's what I loved watching on TV. My friends would be watching whatever shows that normal kids were watching. <laughs> and I was watching Julia Child, Yan King Cook and The Frugal Gourmet. Those were like the three shows that were on at the time. And it was funny because I had nobody to talk to about it. You know, I wasn't calling up my friend and be like, oh my God, did you catch what Julia did yesterday? Or Yan is so funny. It was just something that I did just because I wanted to. I don't even think I honestly watched it with my mom and my sister. It was just my own thing. And again, it's one of those things I look back and think, oh, that was a sign. Doing the restaurants, watching those shows all the time. I would come home from swim practice. I was a swimmer and so I was ravenously hungry all the time. And for just a light afternoon snack, I would make myself a whole bag of frozen french fries and I would put it on a plate, but I would garnish it. So I was like sprinkling like (laughs) spices on top and then I garnished it with like dried parsley around the edge of the plate, which of course, not something we do these days. But I look back at that and think, who garnishes their after school snack?
0: (laughs) I was thinking recently about this weird snack I used to make. I had this weird idea that bouillon was a really, really fancy thing. So I would order that on planes as a kid. I don't know why I thought this, but then I would make individual portions of stuffing where I would make bouillon or I would have that Bell's poultry season it and make toast and put
1: it on there and butter it. And so I was making like individual portions of stuffing. We all have our weird little things that we do. Well, bouillon's a fancy word. So that's why you thought it was fancy. But I also just recently in the past like few months after cooking with um, a couple of folks, on this show that I do called The Curious Chef, but I take the bouillon and add it to so many of our spice mixes, whether it's a chicken one or the pork one, it just adds this amazing flavor when you're mixing with coriander and cumin and all these other spices. It's so fun. So at this point, when you're garnishing and things like, you're developing flavor there, you're developing the visuals
0: of this. Is this just all a result of things that you've seen, you've sought out? Were you making new decisions for yourself? How are your tastes coming together?
1: There's this other thing that I used to do, and it's funny because now Ernie likes to, he calls it experiments when he grabs all these things out of their refrigerator mixes them together and basically makes sauces. Now that he stopped putting soap as one of the ingredients, I actually eat them. He made a really good barbecue sauce the other day. It was really great. But I would go into the cabinet and grab my mom's different spices and then take some different soda and cream or what different liquids to and make myself these non-alcoholic, obviously, cocktails, but with these different spices and such. So really just looking at the layers of flavor, I just thought it was a fun thing to do in the afternoon. I don't even know why. It was just something that naturally I enjoyed doing or that I was just drawn to. And whether it was from watching the shows or just something that's inherently like in you somehow and watching my mom cook all the time and eating so many different things, I just thought it was fun. Now someone would be doing that on TikTok and calling it chaos cooking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. If... Only TikTok had been around then. I would have been a star. I think about this a lot because I definitely had my passions that I didn't have anybody my age to talk about with. We didn't have the internet. I'm a little bit older than you. We did not have the internet growing up. You had to be kind of weird and private, I guess.
1: Yeah, we definitely didn't have the internet. I remember when it came to be when I was at University of Michigan and all you could do was email someone else at Michigan. And I emailed my friend and I was like, stand up if you read this. And she stood up and it was the craziest thing
0: I've ever seen. So this starts to come together. Were you thinking about going on to do swimming at a collegiate level, at a pro level? What was the notion of who you're going to become at this point, maybe once you're moving into high school or so?
1: I mean, I would have loved to with swimming. I was one of the hardest working swimmers there ever was, but my body is definitely not made for swimming. I always wanted to be an Olympic champion. I'm huge into the Olympics. That probably wasn't going to happen. I ended up wanting to just go into business. And I think this is the silliest reason. So we used to get these catalogs in the mail. There was these Victoria's Secret catalogs where the women were wearing all these like power suits. I'm pretty sure they weren't that high of quality, but they looked great in the pictures and I wanted to go to business school so I could be in business and wear some sweet power suits. That's really all I envisioned. (laughs) I don't know what kind of business I thought I was going to do. And I still don't understand what a lot of people do that are in business. They set up meetings, they recap meetings, this is what their day is, and nobody's wearing power suits anymore. But that was just where my mind was. I thought I'm going to get into college somewhere and I'm going to go into business school and that's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna be one of these women. I ended up at University of Michigan and I definitely spent more of my time going to football games. I went to every single one, went to the Rose Bowl my senior year. It was incredible, go blue. But I didn't get into the business school sophomore year. So I ended up picking sociology as my major because it was only on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I had class from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. two days a week. And the rest of the week, I got my first restaurant job doing front of house at the Olive Garden. Oh, do tell about the Hospitaliano. Oh, yes. I can sing you a birthday song if you'd like. It's like one thing that's engraved in my brain for the rest of my life, and it's probably hogging space for things to remember, like scallop dishes or other important details. Let it out here. Here is here is your moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sing you part of it. From the pasta we make to lasagna we bake, we're all wishing you a happy birthday. Hope you remember this fun event forever. Wishing you a happy birthday. It's family and friends at the Olive Garden in the true Italiano way. Hey, hey, when you're looking for some fun, try Hospitaliano. Have a happy. Happy, happy day. Happy birthday. There you go. You can play that back when it's your birthday. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I was just talking to someone about how my singing voice is now what it used to be, but they still instilled things that are true. When you go through training, there you learn hot food, hot, cold food, cold money to the bank, and clean restrooms. Those are the four things that you're taught when you go through training. I mean, it's all true. On the way in here, I was having
0: a conversation with a writer who's about chain restaurants and secret chain restaurants. And we were trying to figure out which chain has the least vibes of anywhere. And I was like, that's actually really hard to say because it takes one person with a personality to give a place a vibe. And I was thinking there have been like James Beard Awards written about meals at Olive Garden because there's something there.
1: Yeah, it was the, where I got my start. And I think what I loved about it so much was that everybody that worked there, people in the restaurant industry used to have a little bit crazy. They're a little bit fun. It was more fun than hanging around the library. I've been lucky enough to eat at
0: various of your restaurants when I've been in Chicago, and it feels like a hug walking in there, honestly. Like, it really feels like you have hired people for their humanity in a way that is really incredibly meaningful, because if I'm there, it means I'm traveling. It means I'm maybe not in my regular situation because I have some dietary restrictions and things. It just sets this immediate tone of being welcome. Is that something that you find now that you hire for? How do you hire for those positions?
1: 100%, I think everybody that works in our restaurant it's about finding the personality, the drive, someone that's just understands hospitality and has that excitement about it that we do. You can teach someone the wine list. You can teach someone how to bring someone to a table. You can teach someone eventually bartending after they've barbacked for a while. There's so many skills that you can teach, but you can't teach someone hospitality. And you mentioned that when you first brought up the scallop when I gave you one because of your allergy. And I think... That's something that we try to instill on everybody at our restaurants. You should never make someone feel uncomfortable because they can't eat something or because they're different and they've never tried this before. When someone asks, what is pig face or what is goat taste like or ducks have tongues for the duck tongues, like people have all these questions when they come in and You don't want to make them feel that they're any less because they don't know the answers to this. It's amazing that people come in and trust us and want to try new things and have questions to ask.
0: So are you a person who, when you come up against something that's outside of your comfort zone, you're like bashing until you are the best at it? Or are you okay saying like, hey, maybe that thing isn't for me?
1: Usually I'm trying to get to be the best at it. I'm a little bit more, I'm sure that so many people you talk with, all the chefs you talk with are very competitive. That's how we ended up where we are today, always pushing to be the best version of ourselves. I know there's some sports that I've decided I'm just not good at it. I'm okay with that. I cannot ice skate. I'm not really good at skiing. Anything I have to put something on my feet other than shoes is just not for me. And I'm all right with that because I know I'm okay at some other sports. So I guess there's some things in life that I've decided I can accept. But when I decide that I want to be good at something, I definitely give it my all and really just want to push for it. Like, Pickleball right now has become my new obsession. You in like half the country. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm right there with everyone. And I don't even know if I feel like I need to be the best pickleball player. I just want to do it as much as possible. But when I like something and I want to be good at it, I definitely give all of my energy to it.
0: I was actually talking about this with a friend who has an 11-year-old son, and he was not practicing his music. And I said, do you think he's worried about not being good enough at it or something and running up against that frustration. And we were sort of talking that through. And I realized that something that maybe took until my 40s or so is I'm cool to sucking at some stuff. I'm just like, I like doing this thing. I'm never going to be good at it,
1: but that's okay. It's just for me. I think it's a hard thing to learn and to accept. I think it is definitely something when you get older, you can be like, oh, I'll just do that for fun and it doesn't really matter. Or it's just a personality trait to always want to be feel that you're doing your best at something. So
0: there had to be a moment where something flipped for you because you're you're working, you have a sociology degree working front of house, but then you're going to cooking school. What was that decision about?
1: It was literally a phone call with my dad, which I love being able to give him credit on this because he literally like changed my life of where I am today. He was at first sort of scolded me for that I hadn't picked a major. I was a general studies major. And finally I said I was going to pick sociology, but started going to those classes and I wasn't really loving anything and didn't know what I was going to do with it. And he said, how about after you graduate, you go to culinary school? And I was like, what are you talking about? It was nothing that even remotely ever crossed my mind. I graduated college in 98. It wasn't something that people really talked about. There was still a little bit of food TV and people would talk about it every once in a while, but it wasn't what it is today where if you said, I'm going to be a chef, people would be like, what? More of like a question mark as opposed to what? That's Awesome. So I thought that sounds fun. Yeah, let's do that. So I picked a culinary school in Arizona where my sister was living, finished University of Michigan. So glad that I graduated, but didn't really do anything with that. Just went down to culinary school in Arizona. And from the first moment that I walked in, I was like, I have found my people. Everybody wanted to talk about food and just all the chefs. I remember the first day the chef said, For those of you that think you're going to finish school and you're going to suddenly be a chef, like you're sorely mistaken. And I thought, oh, okay, cool. I totally thought that's how it works, but I guess not. And <laughs> it's like, you're going to finish and make $8 an hour. Make making salads somewhere. I thought, oh, wow, that sounds incredible. Yes, sign me <laughs> up. This is great. But every day in at Michigan, it was like dragging myself to class. Whereas at culinary school, I was always the first one there. I was like I was definitely the teacher's pet. I was just so excited every day to be there, to be learning new things and just being able to explore what I had been doing growing up cooking with my mom, but didn't really ever think about as a career. In previous episode talking with Shota Nakajima and he was saying like he dropped out of high school
0: because he was not getting that affirmation and he went to a restaurant and he was good at it and that made him want to do more and more and more. So you're finding your people and this thing that just
1: clicked for you and how surprising is that to you? What is this starting to look like? I remember one day it was in sauce class and I made a sauce where I think I put like some sort of fruit and some pickles into my tomato sauce. And the chef kind of looked at me like, why are you putting these ingredients in there? And then when he tasted it, he was like, wow, how did your mind think of doing this? But I remember that moment of thinking, I think I'm gonna put this in there and this in there because these flavors all support each other in different ways and getting to have that creativity and like that outlet for things that have just been inside of you felt so amazing I still didn't really know what this meant what happens after you finish culinary school I had no idea I'd never worked in a restaurant in the back actually cooking and didn't understand what the career path was all about but I just was like I am along for the ride we'll be back with more from Stephanie Izard
0: after the break This episode of Tenfold Swans from Food and Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I am chatting with Stephanie Izard. I'm just imagining that moment because not only are you making yourself happy and getting that, you made somebody senses happy. They got to literally consume the thing that you made that was the sort of product of your thought process. Do
1: you still feel that when you see somebody taste your food? Oh, 100%. When we go to events sometimes where you're actually, you're watching guests take that bite of your food when it's one of those walk-around events and someone takes a bite and I'm totally staring right at them as they're eating it, thinking, okay, please make a happy face, make a happy face. And if you don't know someone, you don't know what their facial reactions are. Sometimes I take a bite of something and make this terrible face and then I say, oh yeah, that's fantastic. It's just like, the acid reacting with my mouth or is going on. So I'll watch people and then I try to make eye contact with them. I'm like, thumbs up? Or like, what did you think? It's even at, to this day when I'm at events, I love seeing people's reaction. Hopefully they're good. If you see someone that just kind of puts their face down and walks away, you think, oh no. They did not like that. But for the most part, it brings people back over and they want to then talk about the food and talk about how did you decide to make this? So it's fun. It's so different than I was sitting here. and I'm just looking across the room at just like pictures hanging on the wall and thinking about artists and same idea where people get to enjoy your art form. They get to look at the paintings, but it's different with food. People get to actually consume it and talk about it. And it's a little bit easier to see the gratification of someone enjoying what you've created. So I think as chefs, we're really fortunate that we can have people come into our restaurants and watch them having fun with their friends enjoying the food and it makes all of the hard work so much more satisfying. It's an act of generosity
0: and you're literally like nourishing people and making them happy and delighting them on all these levels. So what is the next step for you after culinary school?
1: After culinary school, I worked in a couple of restaurants in Arizona. I started off doing banquets. I was just making giant fruit platters and such. That's kind of great. Yeah, it was kind of great. There's a lot of fruit. They're like, we have like fruit platter for a thousand and then this one for 300 and this and this. Good for my knife skills. But there was brunch service on Sundays. And there was one Sunday where I think someone else was unable to come in and they gave me a toque to wear, which is probably the only time I've ever worn a toque. And I got to go over to the brunch and oversee it as though I was the chef of the brunch and make sure that we kept replenishing things as we needed. And people would come up and say, thank you, chef. This was fantastic. And it was the first time I'd ever had that moment. I didn't actually make any of the food, probably helped put some of the salads together, but I hadn't created any of it. But for people to be so happy and to be thanking me and to be calling me chef, it felt truly incredible. I definitely was not actually at that level yet, but for the day I was, and I knew that I wanted to get to the point where I was actually the chef. So I stayed in Arizona for a little while. I ended up working for Bo McMillan, who's done some Food Network stuff now. And he's great, huge personality and an amazing chef. He let me learn the whole kitchen. Then he also would bring me under his wing and learn the ordering and all those sort of things. So I was working at this place called the Sanctuary on Camelback in Arizona. But it closed for renovations for a couple of weeks. And I flew to Chicago to see some friends just to say hi to people that had moved there from Ann Arbor and things like that. I was there for three days. I went to a street fest, a Cubs game just met amazing people and i called my sister and said, "Hey, i'm just going to move to Chicago. Can you ship my stuff out?" <laughs> and so, i didn't even think i told my parents until i was already actually living there. I was like, "Oh, i moved to Chicago, by the way. How are you? Okay, bye." It just felt like a better place for me. It felt like the right city. And i took the summer just having i worked for like Hallmark restocking cards or something like that and just spending time with my friends and then realized, "Oh, i also happened to pick a city that's an amazing food town." I hadn't really even thought of that as a reason. It just seemed like a cool place. So i got my first job there I was working at Vaughn which was a Jean George oh, Bongratin restaurant. Yes. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, the flavors, we had this thing called a black plate. It was all these different appetizers on a plate. And when you had like 10 of those picking up, you kind of wanted to cry at the time. But looking back at, there was this amazing quail on there and these little daikon lobster rolls and just all these fun little things on like, it was almost like a poo-poo platter, which is always so fun. That place was definitely a huge influence with all of the Asian flavors and such. And then I worked for Sean McLean. He had his restaurant Spring. So I was on the opening team of Spring, which was also a great experience. If you've never been on an opening team of a restaurant, it's something that every cook needs to do because you get to decide where everything's going to go in the kitchen. And it's such an amazing thing to be part of. So I worked there for a while. And then I ended up leaving, got my first sous chef job at this place called La Tosh. It was like this little French bistro up in Andersonville in Chicago named La Tosh, It was supposed to be the spot, like the hot spot. But it actually means, the owner didn't realize that, it means La Tosh, like the spot on your shirt. like a little, <laughs> so we would joke. I worked with Dale Levitsky at the time, and we would be like, yeah, we work at the Smudge. He's awesome. The kitchen was basically me, him, and two cooks. It was the tiniest kitchen, and he would let me come up with specials. So there was one night where Paul Kahn came in for dinner, and I remember I had made a fish special with sturgeon, and that's all I remember about it, of course, because I've mentioned I can't remember anything. But I was peeking out the little like window in the kitchen to see him at the bar eating it just to see if he liked it or not. And he liked it so much, he got a second one to take home for his wife, which that was the biggest thing that had ever happened to me. Paul was like I still have such huge admiration for him. And he was one of those amazing chefs that I just wanted to be that I looked up to. So there was moments like that at Latash that were happening. And I just kept making fish specials and getting to be creative in the kitchen. And there was one day where Dale was out of town, so I was running the kitchen. And one of the other cooks says to me, goes, you're just really good at this. You should open your own restaurant. And I said, oh, okay. So I quit my job the next week. And almost a year to the date later is when I opened my first restaurant. Silla. Just crazy. How does that all come together? Is it just the hubris of youth? (laughs) You're like, yeah, I can do this. This is great. This is totally funding fine, like staffing fine. I mean, I've always been a little bit of a just go for it type of person, but this was definitely, I just put my, mind to and decided, I'm just going to do this. So I found a friend who was a realtor and he would take me around to a bunch of spaces till we found this cute little two-story house that I ended up getting a loan from the bank and buying, which is crazy. I didn't even know how to like go to a bank and ask for a loan, but I figured it out. You just basically ask everybody around you questions and, you know, realize that it's okay to not know everything. It's okay to ask people questions, especially when you're trying to learn the restaurant industry. And yeah, somehow did it. I don't think if I took myself now and went back to myself at 27, I don't even think I could do it. It's so scary. I can't believe just kind of went for it. And then is
0: that where you were when Top Chef came a call in?
1: Yeah. So I we were open for a little over three years. I had tried to sell it like I would have a bad couple of days and call my realtor and be like, I want to sell the restaurant. And then there'd be a review about amazing scallops or something. And I'd say, never mind. We're so great. This is so great. I love it. But there was one day where I was in there and I was calling back the reservations to confirm them for service. Cause I would do that. I was the front of the house manager. I did all of our books like and ran the kitchen. You know, it was a tiny restaurant. So I was calling back the reservations and I say, Hi Mrs. Jones. I'm just calling to confirm your reservation for tonight. And I was had the phone in my hand and I fainted. And I got up off the floor like a couple minutes later and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to call Mrs. Jones back and tell her. So I called and said, hi, I'm so sorry. I just happened to faint while I was confirming your reservation, but just calling to make sure everything's good for tonight. And I'm fainted again. And I'm not even kidding. So I'm laying on the floor, like holding a phone, thinking to myself, what is going on? on here, and there's nobody else in the restaurant except for me. So I find a table, put my head down for a little bit until someone else comes in, go to the hospital, and they just say that I'm exhausted and just pushing myself too hard and all of those things that I'm sure. I was only not even 30 years old and just working like crazy. And that's when I decided, I was like, I think I should sell this restaurant. I think maybe I'll take a break from doing all of these things and go back to working in restaurants, go travel some more, and then try this again. And so right after I would signed the papers to sell the restaurant to another chef, is when Top Chef called. It was like, this is when I started feeling like everything happens for a reason. It was one of our last Saturdays of service and Top Chef had called to see if I could come and meet them at this weird hotel room. It was a very strange process back in the day, but to come and meet with them to see if I would want to do the show. And I thought, I have to work today. It's Saturday. And they were like, did you hear us? We just said, This is Top Chef. We're calling to see if you want to be on the show. So, went down and started the process, and that's how it all happened. But the fact that I literally just sold my restaurant right when this was all taking place, I think I had turned over the building about a week before we went to film. The timing was just hard to believe.
0: That was the first reality show that I ever had emotional investment in. And it was specifically your season. And I remember I had a colleague, and I think maybe I showed this to you at some point. She made buttons.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. When I was cooking, watching the first few seasons, we would have bets in the kitchen. It was one show that a reality show that we actually watched and that we respected. And each week we would see who picked the right person that was going to get kicked off or whatnot. So when they called, I mean, my first reaction was no, because the thought of going on television in front of millions of people wasn't something that I was seeking after. I never would have thought of it. They just happened to come to the city and asked a few other chefs in town, who should we reach out to? And I got recommended. So that's just kind of how it happened. I was very lucky. Well, certain amount of skill in there too, because you won. (laughs) It's true, yes. What an amazing experience. Everybody on our season was so awesome, and you have this crazy experience you go through with them that you can never really truly explain to anyone else who's not gone through it. I think now that they're about to start filming season 21, everyone that's done the show gets the feeling. I mean, you're trapped in a house with a bunch of people that you've never met before, not allowed to talk to your family and friends, and you're filming this really hard show where they tell you nothing that's going to happen the next day. So you wake up each day thinking, what is Padma? Well, no longer Padma. Yay for Kristen. Going to have us do today. It's kind of this surreal, inexplicable experience. Humans aren't quite built for that. I
0: mean, maybe now, I guess, because reality TV has been such a part of the landscape for such a long time,
1: people come out of the womb prepped for this. I think on this most recent season, Buddha had studied it. Oh, Buddha was ready. Yeah, uh, He was. basically said, like, this has been my goal since I started cooking, was to win Top Chef, which very different. I mean, for me, I remember I asked Dale Levitsky for some advice before I went, and he said, you're going to eat a lot of junk food. <laughs> And I said, that's all you're going to tell me? He said, yes, I'm not going to tell you anything because I want you to experience the way that he had where you have no idea what you're getting into because that's what makes it so great. If you try too hard before you get there, it just won't be that same experience it's meant to be. It's such an incredible thing and a life-changing amount of money that you win. It's not that. It's more so the opportunities that come out of it, I think. And each person that's won the show has taken it in a little different direction. I think some people, they're just like, hey, I did that. I'm going to check that off my list. I'm very proud, but I'm just going to go back to working in my restaurant.'" And some people think, I'm not going to work in restaurants anymore. I'm now going to go and just be famous chef person and go around and work with brands and go to events and such. And for me, it was kind of trying to combine both of those worlds and keep both going at the same time. But everybody's done different things. And it's so great to look around at the success of not just the winners of the show, but so many people that have participated. It just opens all these doors and it puts you on a national level where people from other cities can see you cooking and want to come to your restaurant or just want to see you at events. It's pretty incredible. I think I didn't want to credit Top Chef with so many things when I first got off of it. You know, you're like, oh, it's not because of Top Chef that I did this, but I look back and think... So many of the opportunities that I've had stem from that moment. It is a massive spotlight. It comes with a tremendous
0: amount of pressure. It's always fascinating to me because I've had a lot of friends be on Top Chef and gotten to know folks. Walking around the Food & Wine Classic in Aspen, there are no bigger stars on the planet than there are people who have been on Top Chef and especially people who have won and that people are just coming up to you and wanting a selfie and wanting a moment of exchange. They want to say what you meant to them. I mean, I probably did that to you, you know, sort of early when I knew you. And when you're a chef, you're incredibly good at your craft in all different ways. It's a different
1: set of muscles to be a person in public. How did you develop that? I remember the first time that someone recognized me. I was actually at the airport and I was standing in line to get on the plane and I think I did have a flip phone at this moment because I remember I was on it. And someone came up to me and said, oh my gosh, are you Stephanie from Top Chef? And I think that our second episode had just started airing. And I said to my friend on the phone, I said, it's happening. And I just hung up on them and like met these people and from that moment on, it just, it continues to grow And that it's mostly in your hometown f- for the beginning. And then it starts to grow in other cities and you're doing more traveling because you're getting brought to different events and you just suddenly become, like I said, you can't be shy after you win Top Chef because you're meeting people all the time. And I think it's something that as someone in the restaurant industry with that hospitality, it just kind of comes naturally. But for a lot of chefs, they're in the kitchen for a reason because they don't want to be in the spotlight. They don't want to be talking to everybody that walks by. I enjoy it. I think it's really fun. I was in Chicago a couple days ago for the weekend and where my restaurants are in the West Loop, it's like this little world where everybody just knows why I'm walking down the street. And it's so funny. People drive by in their car and they're like, Stephanie, we love you. Or just these funny moments where that city is so amazing at embracing chefs and embracing just people that are from Chicago that do TV things or whatever. It's an amazing feeling. I think each time that someone comes up to me and has something, they want to meet me and take a picture, I feel genuinely excited. I think it's a pretty incredible feeling. So you've taken it from playing restaurant as a kid, making little things, to multiple
0: restaurants and cookbooks and sauces and all of this. And that is so many things to do. And they probably each require a different set of muscles, I imagine.
1: How do you take care of yourself while
0: you're juggling all of these things?
1: Well, I am sitting here in my workout clothes, which is definitely my answer all the time. I think it's what six restaurants right now with a couple more in the works, hopefully another cookbook coming, lots more TV stuff is because it's what I truly want to be doing right now. So I'm just working on that and sort of always finding new challenges for myself, I think keeps my brain excited about what I already have going on. sounds ridiculous to say that, but the busier I am, the more I want to add to my plate. I think always having new challenges for myself that I'm just really excited about. So even if I'm having a little bit of stress in one of my other projects, I have something that's just a new and exciting at the same time. So it keeps my brain in a good place. And then physically, I just work out every day. It's my one time of day where I just don't think about work at all. I'm just doing this for myself. I have to keep my body in a good place because I have a seven-year-old. Got a late start there. So I think it's those things. It's like keeping everything exciting. And also the only reason I can do all of these things is because I have amazing teams everywhere. I'm sitting here. I'm not worried what's happening at Girl and the Goat that's about to open in 30 minutes in Chicago. (laughs) I know they're going to have a great service. And I know that tasting is going to be awesome. And they know exactly how to do what they do. And they do it so well. It's surrounding yourself with amazing people in each of those areas, whether it's the sauce company or finding the right person to write a cookbook with, whatever it is, you have to take what you know and find someone else who knows that piece of it even better so you can work together on the project.
0: I chalk a certain amount of this up probably to Gen X masochism and the sort of brain that goes into hospitality. Imagine <laughs> There's a certain amount of that as well. Are you able to be gentle with yourself? I think like
1: the way that I am with myself is good and bad at the same time. I think the sort of not wanting to not be good at things and pushing myself is how I've gotten to where I am now. But sometimes I forget to take a moment to step back and think, Wow! Look at all this amazing stuff that's going on in my world. Look at all these amazing people I get to work with. Look at all this cool stuff I have coming up. Look at all these great things that I've done. I kind of forget to take that moment, and when I actually do, and talking to you is actually very therapeutic because I'm going through all of these cool things that have happened and think, wow, I've been pretty busy. This is really great. But sometimes, if I'm in one of the restaurants during service and I take a second to actually stop and go and just look in the dining room and see all these people that are so happy, or when we're in Aspen Food and Wine and we're doing our cooking demo and just looking out at all these people that are so excited to just be in Aspen with us and just enjoy this amazing experience, like you just have to pause sometimes, take a look and remind yourself that you're doing pretty great. I definitely do more of the pushing myself in the other direction more often. But like I said, I think that's how I've gotten here. So it's a little yin and yang, I guess. What's your relationship to the word perfect? Ooh, relationship to the word perfect. I don't think that you can ever do anything that's perfect. I think striving for perfection is one thing. And I used to push more for that than I do now until honestly, like during the pandemic. And I hate to even bring that word up and even talk about it, but it was life-changing, especially in my restaurants. I used to walk in and if there's a piece of paper on the floor or something, I'd be like, why isn't this getting cleaned? You know, in my mind, I would start not yelling at anybody. It was yelling at myself sort of, how are you letting your restaurant be dirty? And now I walk in and think, you know what? It's just dinner. You know what? We're going to do the best that we can. It's probably going to be really great compared to like some other experiences out there. We put our best foot forward. We do keep it as clean as we can, serve the most amazing food we can, have great teams and really celebrate those teams. Is it going to be perfect any day? No, you just want it to be the best that it can be. The restaurant in LA, last I talked
0: to you, it was about to open. Have you opened yet?
1: Yeah, we have two restaurants in LA now. So there's Girl and the Goat in the Arts District and Cabra is at the Hoxton Hotel downtown. A very different world out here and I think in so many different ways, but we're learning and I moved out here. So it's really just diving into what it's like to live out in LA and to understand the West Coast a little bit more. But again, fun new challenges. It's been very unique and I love the neighborhood that we're in with Girl and the Goat. It kind of feels like you took the West Loop from Chicago and like put it in the sunshine with mountains in the backdrop. (laughs) So I think I'm buying a ticket right now. (laughs) That that sounds really quite (laughs) incredible. I'm here in very muggy New York
0: currently. (laughs) So I ask everybody this, what does a tinfoil swan mean to you?
1: A tinfoil swan to me, I mean, it feels like you had an amazing experience and just got it wrapped up in the perfect little keepsake at the end. If someone had ever given me the tinfoil swan at the end of a meal where I had some leftovers, I probably would just have rotten food in right now because I'd be sitting on my mantle. I'm looking over at this mantle I have of all these giraffes. <laughs> but the tinfoil swan would be saved forever. It's sort of holding on to memories of something amazing that's happened to you.
0: I personally love leftovers. They're just my favorite thing, so I get fixated on, and I also like metal, so I, I like a, a funny little object. So what is the kind of thing that you will do for yourself today? Well, I'm
1: looking over at my second latte that I've decided to turn myself into a second latte day person. I don't know <laughs> if I'm doing this for myself or to myself. I would say this is the most work that I'm doing today. And it's just so hard. You know, I can't believe you're pushing me so much. (laughs) But I'm having some friends over. I'm going to do a lot of cooking and not in the way where it feels pressure to cook. I just got a bunch of food. I honestly don't even know what I'm going to make yet. But when we get off, I'm going to hop in the kitchen and just make a big spread because I have friends coming over in a couple of hours. And that's what I like to do. I find it therapeutic. Let my creativity flow and just cook for your friends. It's like stress-free and fun and really just getting back to it. So what would you now say to that 10-year-old you playing restaurant? Honestly, I wouldn't tell that 10-year-old anything. I think the fact that my life has just all kind of happened without me planning anything and it just kind of keeps presenting. It's like this roller coaster ride that I'm on and I never know what is coming over the hill and what's around the corner. And I kind of don't want to know. I don't think that if I had told myself that I was going to grow up and be this restaurateur and maybe I should really focus on this and that, I wouldn't have gotten here. You know, it was all the things that I did. And I know people say this, it's like things that you do wrong that get you to, to where you are. But let's say if I had actually gone to class at Michigan and gotten into <laughs> business school, <laughs> I'd be sitting here in not a power suit, but I'd probably be sitting in an office having a boring Zoom call instead of talking to you. (laughs) So I think all of the things that I did wrong or didn't push through on or, you know, didn't have the passion for it all worked out. So I'm just going to keep it going this way. I love that. And where can people find you And your sauces. At Stephanie Eisert on Instagram and then at this little goat. So we just launched our chili crunch a little over a year ago. It's one of my favorite things. Chili crunches, all the yummy things.
0: Oh, congratulations. As somebody who has been following along with you for a really, really long time, and I'm going to send you videos from that flip cam because they still are on there. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today because I know how busy you absolutely are but it really truly has been a joy for all of these years to see you thrive and I just cannot wait to
1: see what you're going to do next thank you thanks guys I mean amazing to see you too with your new position in food and wine it's so great I'm so happy for you
0: I like it as our mutual friend guy would say let's burn the wheels off
1: (laughs) there we go (laughs) thank you so much
0: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Stephanie Izard. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast, leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. I would really appreciate it. And you can also find us online at slash tinfoil swans. When I say we, I mean our fantastic production team. Lottie Lee Marie, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next week for my conversation with Rocco dispirito. Take care of yourself until the next time.